Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. This week, we have Sersha McHugh. Sersha is a Mayo native and environmentalist and someone who deeply cares about the future of Ireland. Um, she was kind enough to give us an hour of her time not too long ago, and it was a pleasure getting to ask her some of the questions I've been wanting to ask her for quite a long time. We touch on destigmatizing unemployment, the root causes of the tone deaf policies we've been seing quite recently, Sersha's departure from the Green Party, and what Sersha's utopia looks like in five years, and more. <laughs> um, thanks for listening, guys, and hope you enjoy. All the best. Sersha McHugh, welcome to the Earthly Delights podcast. Thanks for giving us your time. Thanks for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. Um, first of all, what's the crack? How have you been keeping? Good now. I suppose uh, the crack has been fairly similar for most people and like like a lot of people I'm looking for a job at the moment and you know wondering will I be left in my house you know will I have a house there and over the next six months or so so it's uh, definitely exciting anyway yeah it's 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 funny because like it's always been uncertain but now it's the uncertainty is definitely just amplified and I feel everybody is just more aware of the uncertainty than ever yeah, and I maybe maybe it's not a real thing, but it does feel like you know before I, I've been unemployed several times in my life. Um, you know, before the pandemic, I had internalized maybe a lot of the shame of being unemployed. Um, but now I I feel that maybe a lot more people, maybe for the first time ever, are you know in a precarious condition and it seems that there's a lot more maybe solidarity with people. And I don't feel shame saying, you know, I'm actually unemployed and finding it really hard to get work because so many people are like that at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Which isn't isn't necessarily a good thing, but it's, uh, it's nice to not be, not feel like the only one. Yeah. I I mean, I would definitely regard it as progress. I remember uh, maybe it was like six or seven months ago. I also, uh, applied for the doll and it was so i had had a few few experience where i was unemployed but for maybe a month or so and i always didn't want to apply for it just because i thought oh no i mean i'd prefer not to and yeah like i yeah i, I felt that kind of oh people will say people will say this oh he's on on the doll but uh i eventually did it just before the the, the covid and then obviously the covid thing happened but yeah, it's strange. It, like you say, it's not a positive thing, but I can't. Ha- I, ca- I can't see it any other way. In that, it's kind of like a, an understanding that, yeah, this this could happen to anyone, really. Yeah, it's it's not a reflection on, you know, you as a person at all, or your productivity, or this kind of thing. Yeah, I do think it's interesting how the government have modified the PUP payment now, so that the amount of money you get depends on how much you were earning beforehand um you know the, do you remember everyone was getting if you had lost your job due to covid in the beginning you're getting 350 a week yes. um but they've i have they introduced or they are introducing then different levels where if you were earning above a certain amount you get 350 if you're earning below a certain amount you get i think it's three and then oh. two or 250 and two um and I just think that's really interesting because they, you know, the government are clearly saying that actually some people's unemployment is different to other people's. 
Um, so there's definitely still uh, maybe they've betrayed the government has kind of betrayed a way of seeing different types of workers um, because I'm like well you're unemployed or you're not you know why should someone get more and someone get less and you know a lot of the conversation came up with the PUP payment in the beginning they were saying right so are you saying that 200 euro a week is not enough to live on when so many people live off that um, yeah like you know if you're if you're disabled that's what you live off so why is it yeah. that if you had a better job, you can't live off that. I don't know. I think I think they revealed something about themselves anyway by doing it that way. For sure, actually, yeah. It's a very. I, I before I really want to get into this. I, um, I think it would be nice for for everyone to just get a a greater background on on you yourself and uh, your recent history and, and how you've come to be where you are now. Um, yeah, could you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Um, yeah, which is usually the most difficult thing to do, isn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> so my name is Pierce McHugh. I'm from Ackle Island, and I am a a lifetime environmentalist, I'll say. Um, and over the last few years, I have been, you know, trying to engage with the political system. I was. I suppose it only counts as lobbying if you get paid, but I was doing unpaid lobbying for, um, you know, different legislative changes, uh, different changes in the constitution. Now I didn't, I didn't get very far with that at all. I think maybe I was a bit youthfully naive. Um, I've been involved with a lot of um, growers organization with food sovereignty and organic growing in Ireland. And so I've worked a lot on agricultural reform. I was in. I had a brief stint in the Green Party, where I ran for a European election, a general election, and I think I tried to get into the Shannon three times <laughs> in the space of like twelve months. Um, and I, I didn't get elected, and I stayed in the party and ended up leaving after the party accepted a program for government to get in with the current government. So now I suppose, you know, after having dedicated my life for the last year and a half or two years trying to get elected I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next um, and how I can best be effective I suppose which if you have any insight I'd love to hear it <laughs> uh, I, I, frequent, I frequently tell myself I know nothing so I can't tell anybody else uh, <laughs> I can't give any advice but, and I really do want to get into the departure from the Green Party. But, but before, I'd love to know, how did you uh, first begin um, your environmental work? Or how, how did it all start for you? Um, well, I suppose, I suppose on one hand, I'd always um, felt it. So it, it was quite natural. I always kind of felt compelled to do something, whatever, whatever that was. And like, you know, this ranges from really misguided um attempts when I was younger to like you know uh, you know buy an acre of rainforest do you remember those kind of gimmicks yeah, yeah, yeah. um but the sentiment like I know maybe I'm a bit more uh knowledgeable about like what can actually help and what can't um but the sentiment was always there and I suppose this really started when I was about 21 
and I ended up working with different groups that were trying to preserve um, native land rice seeds. So it was, um, they were trying to preserve different types of maize and different, you know, uh, native squashes. And just, they introduced me to the concept of food sovereignty. And it was from there, it was like a match was lit. So I, sorry, now I should have said I was in Mexico at the time. Um, Ah. And I remember, I, I distinctly remember a conversation where someone was describing to me now, this was in my really, really poor Spanish, and their completely fluent Spanish was describing to me how NAFTA um, had really kind of fragmented the the countryside and the economy of Mexico because it allowed um, really cheap subsidized corn be dumped into the Mexican economy from the US. And um, I remember trying to wrap my head around how this had an effect, like how how did how did a free trade agreement mean that, you know, different varieties of corn were becoming extinct? Um, and then I suppose once I grasped that, you start to see, you start to see how trade and especially how the control of your food can, you know, affect entire populations and it affects the shape of the landscapes and the quality of the landscapes. Um and after that, I came back to England and I decided to do a master's in sustainable agriculture and food security. And it was it was from there. I was always trying to figure out once again, you know, how could I make any sort of difference? And there was a lot of there was a lot. I'm sure there still is of uh, like failed projects. So I remember at one stage um, putting together a presentation on food sovereignty and going to a few different schools, presenting it to transition year students. Um, and they're just, yeah, I definitely could have done with a bit of maybe help or feedback because I kind of lost heart in that because it just, you know, I, I suppose I, I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted from the students. In my head, I was like, oh, once they, once they know these things, they'll be outraged. Um, <laughs> And they'll rise up or something. I, you know, I, I didn't really know. Um, and I spent my time trying to write different articles, uh, trying to revive Food Sovereignty Ireland, which, you know, it did actually kind of roll back into life. And Talib Bio was then set up, um, which, you know, I can't take any credit for whatsoever, but this is the Irish branch of the International Peasants Movement, which you know, are campaigning for food sovereignty. Now it's a difficult one because I don't think uh I don't think Irish farmers identify as peasants. Um so we kind of avoid that language bit. But yeah. um I was always yeah, just trying different things and for instance how I ended up in politics was um advocating and and trying to organize a conference around the rights of nature and what that would look like if if it was brought into the Irish constitution that could it even be brought into the Irish constitution um and like once again perhaps I was a tad misguided in that you know I look at a lot of the environmental laws we have now you know you don't even have to go to the constitution but the laws we have now and a lot of the issue is enforcement rather than the law not being there. Mm-hmm. 
uh, which wouldn't necessarily change at all if there was a rights to nature bill in the constitution. Like I do think, you know, as I think about it now, I think we're quite far away from that. Um, but still, I, you know, I, I kept knocking on doors and knocking on doors, um, mainly talking about food sovereignty, trying to volunteer, you know, volunteer in, with different politicians to, to help integrate food sovereignty policy or to help, I suppose, move agricultural policy to a place where food sovereignty could take off because I don't think you can legislate really for food sovereignty. I don't think it would, um, I, I think it has to be something bottom up or else it's not food yeah. sovereignty. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I, I suppose how I ended up in environmentalism is just, it, it always felt right and I still feel like I'm kind of finding my feet in terms of what works, what doesn't um what's effective and what's not because i i also have this kind of this feeling inside me all the time and it is um it's lessening but this feeling is quick quick we have to hurry we have to hurry which means like the idea of working on something for 20 years i'm like oh god i don't have time yeah <laughs> but i'm starting to think that maybe actually that's <laughs> that's what you have to do yeah it's because sorry what comes to mind is when you were mentioning you uh, presenting to the transition of your kids uh, and them not having the reaction that uh, that you expected or that you hoped for. I was wondering, has that been difficult for you also in the political aspect, in the political realm where, where people know a lot of this information or some of this information that, that you are very, uh, you feel very strongly about and you want to act upon, but has it been difficult for you to see that there's this kind of, lethargy among quite a strong amount of the population where hey it's not that bad for me or it's for the people who it isn't that bad for yeah i care but 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 not enough to kind of jilt this kind of fineness in my life yeah and i suppose it's it's awful to watch or it's awful to see but it's really understandable um and it kind of, pardon me, thinks like, of, of course, people feel like that. Like, I think, you know, you look at coronavirus and the response that people had to this and how everyone was willing to completely alter their lives. And, you know, coronavirus is a minor blip compared to what climate breakdown is bringing. Um, but yet it is, you know, it has, it has a couple of key elements in that, Nobody was making money from coronavirus. Um, it was very immediate. So people mm. were saying, like, this is circulating in your community. You do not want to get a disease and die. Um, and it was very simple. Whereas on a, on, with climate breakdown, uh, it's very complicated and very messy. Um, and so much, probably so much worse than it is projected to be. But also, like, our entire economy and society is built around exacerbating climate breakdown. Um, or, well, it's not built around that, but its entire structure leads to that. And thirdly, it's on such a slow time scale, not, not geologically, but in terms of humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's kind of hard to, you know, it's hard to rally that urgency in people. Because you do, like I, I do it myself, you suspect, you think that, or you feel that surely if this was this urgent, our governments would do something about it. 
Mm. Like, it, you know, if, if, because imagine if the government hadn't really said anything about coronavirus and we're like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Everyone was yeah. thinking that it's fine because we internalize these social cues. Yeah. It's like our kids learn to not be afraid of certain things. They watch the adults. And if the adults aren't afraid, that, you know, they, they learn that. And they're like, okay, this is actually fine. And we're all learning, I, I think. We're all looking around and we're like, oh, everything else seems to be fine. So it must be fine, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting, though, because, like, like you say, it is quite a long stretch geologically. But even still, we're, like, reminded of these particularly huge events like if you just look at the wildfires at the minute in the states like these these are huge events that are happening right now and that that there's a direct correlation between how our economy is being run uh, and still there doesn't seem to be like this direct uh, movement towards action no and i no there's not um and like that, I think, you know, a lot of shutting down the economies because of coronavirus, I think was, you know, is about protecting human life. But in the end, it was also like, geez, our economies won't take mass, you know, illness and, and you know, a really high death toll. Um, yeah. And like that, nobody was making money from coronavirus happening. But with the wildfires i think there's just you know there's one or two levels of abstraction because you can say well there's always been fires there's always been wildfires mm-hmm. um and that's what like you hear it all the time in the news and the, and the weather they'll say like these once in a lifetime flood or the once every hundred year storm and you're like yeah but didn't this happen in 2004 and 2011 <laughs> but they still use this language so it's definitely immediate and it's happening all around us but it's it's still happening slowly. You know, it's not like a meteor or or something all at once. It's happening in a way that we start to, we normalize it every time it happens. You know, like there was wildfires in the Arctic last year and there's wildfires in the Arctic this year. And all of a sudden we're like, wow, there's just going to be wildfires in the Arctic every year and we're all going to be like, oh, yeah, apparently there used to be in the past. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's just yeah. It's kind of it's all very surreal, um, and I wonder, I wonder how, I wonder what would you say to people, because I know you're you've been quite critical after leaving the Green Party of the electoral system, and I wonder what would you say to people that do feel a bit kind of like they care, but they also they you know for instance one of my friends who, who cares very strongly about the environment was telling me during the week that he's like i'm sick to death of people telling me that i should join the green party you know like yeah <laughs> like there, there has to be something else also you know there has to be a a, a a more profound next step and i was wondering what's your thoughts on this possible next step well i think like as in if you were to get active but didn't didn't want to join the Greens. Yeah. Um well at first I'm gonna say I don't think joining the Greens helps at all. In fact I think it does damage to environmentalism. Um and secondly, like I think, you know, 
our electoral system is weighted towards conservatives because you're trying to gain, you're trying to offend the least amount of people to get elected. Um, so you're you're constantly trying to present an appeal to the most amount of people. So, you know, it's probably good in a way that it means that like the far right don't get an electoral foothold. Um, but it also means that our politicians tend to be behind the population in terms of, um, yeah, I, I think our population is just more progressive than our politicians because they're constantly trying to make sure they get elected next time, you know? Um, and in terms of the next step, you see, I'm not fully sure. Like I, I don't think it's going to come from politicians. Um, and myself and a friend were just talking about this a few days ago. Like, what do you do? Do you just create the alternative? Um, I can't remember what a theorist used to talk or talks about. Um, like if you just create your alternative, then whatever the state as you know it withers away, or you know the systems that you no longer use wither away. Um, or do you? Is it about education is it about trying to get as many people as possible to force the change from from our government mm. um i'm not really sure like and i think i'm the biggest culprit of this of all, of all but I, I i get so like i know talking about it isn't it you know i know that's not the change yeah like i, I know it plays a role in that you have to things have to be spoken about but the action to be taken um, at the moment, and like that, I, I'm never going to pretend I like I might not agree with myself in two months' time. But at the moment, what I think needs doing is the is the alternative needs to begin to be created. Like we have to just start acting like we're the grown ups, um, like we're the people in charge here. And similarly, I think you know. Things just have to be done. Like, I'm all about protest, you know, symbolic protest. Um, and I think it does play a role and it plays a great role in terms of raising awareness. But at what stage do we just have to say, right, we're actually just going to stop this being built? Um, or we're literally just going to not, you know, allow those planes to take off? Or we're not, you know, or we're just actually not going to allow, you know, the, the dairy herd expand like I and that's what I'm tending to at the moment now you know I haven't done any of these things myself um because it is really difficult and and the temptation is really is really strong to just you know to hope someone someone comes up with the answer yeah um but I can't see anything I, like I can't see a way forward currently except for creating these alternatives we keep talking about do you think Part of it is maybe reconsidering what we are personally willing to lose or reevaluating what we are personally willing to lose for a, a, an actual collective change or a collective momentum to possibly reach the change. You know, like, like you said, with the long termness, I think maybe I like me as well, as well as what I think for other people, um, how it's hard 
for you to say, yeah, I'll justify me maybe like, for instance, possibly losing my job or like possibly losing this for, for the possibility of something then changing in the, in the near future. You know, it's, I feel like it's very hard for us to commit to something like it's really, I was just thinking about it for the last few months, really. It's like the ultimate act of faith where you're saying, no, this is what I care about. And I'm going to put in whatever I can for the possibility of this to change. You know, like the people who've been fighting for civil rights, like they they don't do it with with this like caveat guarantee that, you know, in six and a half years, this will work out or in seven and a half years or 20 years. They're just doing it because this, they care so much about this that they're willing to put it in. And then if, if nothing comes of it, this is what they have to do anyway, you know? Yeah, well, I suppose the beauty of climate change is and climate breakdown is that things are going to change. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's no longer a question. It's not a question of, you know, an act of faith in the hopes that things will change for the better. It's will I make these changes now? Or do I risk the very worst? You know, because climate climate breakdown is happening. Um, and so one way or another, things are going to change. It's how bad are we willing to let it get? Um, you know, and I suppose you can, I'd be wary of going down the how much can one person do route. Yeah. Because you know, the individual action will only get us that far. But saying that, you know, also we have to bear in mind that this system change that we talk about will come with um, with changes for us all and in this part of the world, reductions in what we consider now to be a quality of life. Mm. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go around saying to people, you have to eat less animal products and you have to fly less. But... I will say that if we manage to, you know, get this system changed that we want, um, you will be taking less flights and you will be eating less animal products, um, you know, as a as a consequence of that. But that being said, you know, even framing it in that way is, I don't know, it's it's so beside the point, I think, because what you're gaining is like a livable future and water and not you know uh, massive wildfires and maybe some like whales and dolphins left in your children's future yeah i i i have a few a few questions in my head uh, the one that comes to mind is i like i know you're also quite critical of the economically or finance driven push towards uh environmental or less environmentally harmful policy or behavior um you know saying oh we can only allow x amount of carbon emissions etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and i don't know if you're familiar with charles eisenstein no and so he's an american writer who was saying that similar to this uh, uh similar to this rhetoric that he says we're looking at this completely wrong we can't look at um oh yeah it's fine that we burnt down this forest Uh, we're just going to plant more trees in another place he says that or we can't just look at saying 
uh, we can only have this amount of uh, fossil fuel or carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera. He's saying that we, until we start looking at these forests or the environment as like part of us, which it is, <laughs> then the, the numbers game can only get us so far. Uh, but, the, but the thing is, like when I say this, it ju- like a lot of people, I think, think that's it's just a little too hippie sounding ish to possibly look at a tree like it is part of me. You know, it's clearly not part of me. Um, and I guess I wanted to know because I know you're critical of the the finance driven uh, approach or the, the number driven approach. But it is so hard. It, like, that's why I think it's it's key to try and get a shift of consciousness amongst the population. But I was wondering, how do you think this can be? Like, how do you think we could get this? You know, how do, how do you think we could find and um, reach a place where people are looking at trees and animals like they are part of us, you know, because they are, like they're, they're essential to our well-being? Well, I wonder. So I, I don't know how we could get there, but I do wonder, like, I wonder what it'd be like to talk to people in you know, California or Oregon over the next few weeks and months um, and talk to people who, you know, weren't into nature at all and, and to see has there been any sense of loss or grief over what has happened over there. Um, because it would be shocking if there hadn't been. Um, but like that, you know, there might not have been. I suppose in terms of trying to talk to people about this, about the numbers approach versus the more holistic kind of, you know, we are part of one big life. Um, I think people understand, or people can understand that if we go down the numbers approach, we leave ourselves open to um, a situation like, um, have you ever seen Elysium? It's no, sorry. So, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a film anyway. Oh, I can't even remember who's in it, but people live down on Earth. I think there's aliens there as well, or maybe I'm mixing up two. But basically, all the rich people live in like this constructed ecosphere up in the sky that's beautiful and everything, and Earth is just like destroyed, the barren wasteland. Um, and if we go down the numbers approach, first of all, we start to fudge the reality of what we're talking about like if you talk about tons of carbon but you're not talking about entire ecosystems um then you're really only taking one tiny metric of that ecosystem's value um and i i think it does appeal to most to a lot of people when you say instead of focusing on how do we get to net zero we need to focus on what kind of society we want at net zero because you know, a lot of people, if we do just continue focusing on numbers, a lot of people will be left behind. And I am of the firm belief that if we continue down that route, um, there won't be, there won't be public support for it. Um, because I think it's, you know, it's a tendency of the economic system we have now to use people's lives kind of disposably. Um, yeah. So I think people won't support environmental measures. And then what I think we'll end up to going to is like either an awful 
eco-fascist kind of future or some sort of not eco-fascist future but just fascist future perhaps and I I do think that unless unless people are worked into these equations and and feel as valued as every ton of carbon then you're never going to get those same people to think okay well if there's space for me here there's space for trees and animals and rivers um like it's very hard to get a population that isn't cared about to care about trees and i think only by saying to a person look you have a home you've education you've health care the world is good you can know that you can flee this home and you won't be met by violent border security um wouldn't you like you know what about what about nature what about the wild and i think then I think if people themselves feel cared for, I think they'll be able to care. I'm not like like that. I'm not yeah. sure. I'm just kind of spitballing here. No, that's really interesting because I was going to ask you something similar on this. That I was going to ask you the, the deeper reasons behind this uh, lethargy among uh, policymakers and are like the, the, yeah the tone that poli- policies that we're seeing lately. Uh, and the the population that like don't really express um, kind of outrage at this environmentally harmful behavior. And um, the, if anyone listened to the podcast, they know I love this guy called Gabor Mate. Uh, and one of uh, one of my favorite kind of talks he has is he says that the problems, the many of the societal problems that we have now stem from us not being connected to ourselves, not being connected to the people around us and not being connected to the environment. And it's interesting you say that, that perhaps you think a lot of the people who are not caring about the environment don't feel care for themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I think if you feel you have to fight for, you know, a quality of life, if you have to fight for housing, fight for jobs, fight for your kids' education, you don't, you don't, it feels so far from you, um, you know, vast tracts of wildlife being burnt up in flames. It, it just feels like, like, I do not have time to think about that. Or yes, I would like to think about that if I didn't have, you know, a hundred other day-to-day things on my mind. Um, and and I, I think that's been a great trick of um of our you know of our economic system is to alienate people so much you know initially you know from their work from the land and from the like from the environment i often think back to um i remember reading a book that was quoting a british a british article I think at the time, like back during the 1600s, during the the enclosures in England, and uh, what what he was talking about was how it was done. It was made intentional that the hedgerows on the land did not provide sustenance for the people being kicked off the land. So, like, it was a very, very intentional move to sever sever the immediate relationship with the land from people in order to force them into wage work in the cities and towns. Um, wow. Now, it, like, it might not be a direct kind of 
ideological relation, but I've always found that story to be really, it, it just, it shows really clearly um, what our problem is, which which is this, you know, this, this massive just disenfranch- disenfranchisement of people from from increasing aspects of their life. So like in Ireland, we can look at housing in this generation compared to housing, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And most people are like, oh, yes, I will never own a home. Marvelous. Yeah. You know, what do, what do we do then? And and the, I think the coronavirus has really shown that Dublin is just not made for people. Like we've had an entire city that has been taken away from the people that live in it. Yeah. Um, and I do think that's all related or come from the same kind of ideological family as what we've done to people with nature and how a lot of people interact with nature solely now as this kind of thing to go visit in the countryside. You go look at it. And even then it's, you know, these overgrazed hills, you know, mm. I, I've totally rambled off the point there. No, no, it, it's, it, it's interesting. That, uh, and I guess I wanted to ask then, do you think that the politicians are are also victims of this disconnection? Yeah. And I, I wonder, is the approach, <laughs> I know it's very hard to, 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 for many people to look at it this way, but I wonder would the approach to be to look at uh, Varadkar uh, and whoever and say, okay, they are clearly disconnected from the, the people in their city. Or it, the, the, you cannot, you cannot um, allow this policy to be made or you cannot say you cannot have this statement if there not is an obvious disconnection between you and the people, or you and yourself, even. Well, I'm going to be a bit more cynical about some of our politicians and say that I don't think they're disconnected. I just think they're ideologically committed to this kind of. I still can't. I can't believe it's still going on. This kind of neoliberal, this like, you know, neo Thatcherite sort of economic system like I, I don't think it's a disconnect I think it's an intentional um decision and the, you know there's very few people in the world like very very few people in the world who benefit from that sort of ideology um but there's a lot of people who benefit from facilitating it and I think a lot of our politicians fall into that into that um yeah fall into that category because and and perhaps you can you can only fall into that category if you are already disconnected from nature and from the environment and from the people in your community so perhaps so perhaps the disconnection is like an underlying uh condition needed <laughs> for a commitment a prerequisite to, yeah yeah because because <laughs> it wouldn't happen otherwise you'd be like god no that's awful why would i do that to everyone why would I do that yeah. to the world? That's what I, yeah, that's what I can't stop thinking about. But then I have to ask you, during your time at the Green Party, I presume that you also, there are, I presume there are many people in the Green Party that also definitely have this connection and are definitely uh, upset at seeing these, these disconnections. <laughs> but, but it's, it's strange. Like it's, it's like somewhere along the way. It, I'm just interested, like how did, 
how does the the process happen you know like how, how far do you have to rise for it to say okay sorry now i'm cut off from the people and i just have to do these things to adhere to an ideology that i don't really need to question and as long as i'm fine and as long as i get reelected, that's okay I, geez, from what i've seen you don't have to be in it very long or very you know you don't have to be up very high in it i think I think that the whole um structure itself kind of once you're once you're in it you're you just buy into the idea that this is how things get done and especially in the greens there's this almost pathological kind of idea that compromise is a good in and of itself um so so per, you know perhaps Perhaps there hasn't been a buy-in to neoliberalism, but in the Greens anyway, there's this idea that, you know, if if you compromise, that means you're good. And any, even, the, you know, the worst compromise is better than, you know, a flat-out rejection or objection, which isn't true. <laughs> uh, mm. Sometimes compromise is the wrong thing to do, yeah. um, especially if the compromise is between you know, right and wrong. Um, and so within the Greens, it's, it's I, I don't know where it comes from, but also I think then being in government from what I've seen, um, you know, you, you instantly become defensive because you are trying your best and even though you're wrong and misguided, um, I think you start to feel like, well, hey, I am trying. At least I'm trying something. And so the the dissent and the conversation that's maybe more welcome when a party is in opposition um, very quickly becomes becomes something that the party as a structure, as a as a kind of a social entity, whether it ever admits it or not, but tries to drive out. I see. Uh, did did you feel hurt personally after the Green Party's uh, actions get after getting elected? Did, like, did you feel personally let down, and then it, leaving wasn't uh, a difficult decision at all? Yeah, it was. Uh, well, I couldn't believe they signed up to that program for government. Like, mm. it was such a poor. It is such a poor document, and. People kept trying to say, people within the party kept trying to say, like, oh, but we'll be around the table. And I'm like, yeah, but the table has already been outlined by the program for government. Yeah. You know, you've already seen the menu. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're never going to get anything more. It's not like you're going to get this, <laughs> it's not like you're going to pull some sort of rabbit out of the program for government. It's, it is what it is. And, I was really hurt during the whole program for government negotiations because it turned out that a lot of the the positive things that the Green Party promote, you know, that the the policy is member driven, that um, the parliamentary party have very little powers, that the exec have most of the powers and they are elected by the members, like it, it, you know, it is quite a democratic party structure. Um, but what became very clear during the program for government was that the parliamentary party did not actually care. They didn't care about policies. 
They didn't care about um, who was allowed, you know, whether whether it was right that they, um, you know, would try and suspend somebody unilaterally. They just they just showed time and time again that they did not care about the policies on which the party was supposed to be based because it just didn't suit them on, you know, and they wanted to get into government. So I was really hurt by that. Um, and then when they voted for the program for government, I was like, okay, wow, I'm actually obviously in the wrong place altogether. I was shocked. Like they passed it with a higher majority than either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Wow. I don't know that. Would you be mortified? <laughs> God. So leaving uh, leaving was such a relief, to be honest. Okay, so let me ask you. Uh, I I don't want to ask it, but I want to ask you. <laughs> let me ask you. Best case scenario, how you see the next few years rolling out, and then I want to ask worst case scenario, how you see the next few years rolling out. Uh, like, do do you think? That this uh, that the Green Party will actually joining uh, signing agreeing to the the paper the document and going doing joining government. Do you think that this was actually will do long term damage to the Green Party's appeal? And okay, so best case scenario, yeah, I see a group of good Greens um, split from the party from the main party. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know form their own or whatever, but I think what would be really important would be to have somebody and a group out advocating strongly that these policies are not environmental. This is not environmentalism. Mm-hmm. Um, environmentalism is for everybody, and. Then okay, so actually no, sorry, I'm not I'm not being imaginative enough. Best case scenario, okay. um, the government folds in a year, and no one from Fianna Fáil and again the Greens gets elected again, but the Good Greens have already split. There is a huge left block government, and they swoop in and they introduce a massive stimulus program, which is like real got real Green New Deal vibes whereby we're both, you know, securing the, the I suppose, the social safety net, um, while doing the things that really, really require a state to do, like, um, you know, transforming our electricity generation, um, building social housing or seizing, seizing houses from all over the country from, developers from NAMA, from everyone, just taking the houses and giving them to people um, and maybe pulling Ireland out. Jeez, I even, I'd be wary of saying pulling out of the, the EU because of, because of how badly Brexit has gone and because of how open it is to kind of racist organising. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, the EU is really damaging in, in terms of, its military in terms of its trade policies, in terms of its agricultural policies. Um, but anyway, yeah, so then over between two and, and four years, they do all the big statist kind of things that need doing. And then the people decide enough, we don't want to be governed anymore. Um, and communities just begin to organize and communities take over 
the housing, take over feeding themselves, educating themselves, take over the healthcare. Um, and eventually the state just kind of withers away and we just live happily ever after. And it's just very, very local governance. Yeah. Um, like, and obviously all across the world, similar things would have been happening. And, you know, in in those two or three years where the state was really doing big statey kind of things, um, there's huge rewilding programs. There was a massive, you know, rollback of fishing fleets and of really damaging ecological practices. Um, yeah, it, it'd be great. And then worst case scenario, <laughs> uh, worst case scenario is this continues for the next four or five years. The Fine Gael, you see, I'd say Fine Gael and Sinn Féin are looking at Fianna Fáil and the Greens and looking to just carve them up, to be honest, between mm. them. Um, everyone's put off the idea of environmentalism. Sinn Féin don't want to approach environmentalism because, you know, they've spent the last five years bashing the Greens. They know those ideas, you know, it's environmentalism is linked to the Greens. So then we end up with a Sinn Féin, Fine Gael, I don't know who's in power or who's not, but regardless, we have, you know, sea levels rising every single year, um, massive droughts. We continue the way we are going ecologically in terms of total biodiversity wipeout on this island. Um, and eventually in 40 or 50 years time when the place is almost uninhabitable and we all have to paddle around in canoes because the tide has raised so high. Um, we think, Jesus, maybe we, maybe we should have had some green policies in. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're all like, you know, driving around in ragged leather bralettes and in a kind of Mad Max future. That's the worst case scenario. Well, uh... I I do uh, admire your optimism in terms, or your yeah, your optimism in terms of the best case scenario because yeah, I also feel a similar way in the the need for there just to be more local voices being heard and for things to be sorted out on more communal levels. And I do think, like what you said earlier, that if people have the opportunity to be heard and have the opportunity to, to you know to have a, a home and feel like they're connected to the people and their local parks that they were going to be like it's I just think it's a an obvious consequence to then push for more environmentally friendly behaviors across the board yeah yeah um, definitely. before you leave I would love to um, just ask you about rent um uh, just the renting situation here and whether you think that okay uh, assuming that this best case scenario doesn't happen i'm wondering do you think that there that living arrangements will like change substantially within our generation and future generation in the coming years and decades just because of the like how unaffordable it is and yeah, like I, I think, to be honest, I think if our generation, I assume you're similar age to me, are you? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm from Dublin. No, but a similar age. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm 26. 
Okay, well, you're a bit younger than me. To be honest now, if our generation went our whole lives out saying enough, you know, we're not going to fucking do this, then, <laughs> like, you know, then what are we at? I can't imagine it going on. I can't imagine it not changing within our lifetime because like, if you look at it, okay, so what's the future? So eventually we just all live in in houses owned by Ira's Ret or whatever they're called. Like, that's nonsense. Or we all live in our parents' houses until, until like, what, and hope we get the house in the will. Um, mm. I, I think they'll have to change because, like, every single week, the housing situation is getting worse and worse and worse. Like, my brother was just told today by his landlord, um, like, <laughs> I think his landlord was trying, didn't even realize what he was saying, but he was, he was telling my brother that he wasn't going to let an American girl move into the house. And I quote, because, you know, if I want to kick you out, she has nowhere to go. At least you can go back to your mom and dad's house. You know, she, she'll have nowhere to live on. She might not leave. And my brother was like, oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> cool. It, so, like, I'm, yeah. I mean, let's stay in your house because you can kick me out easily without feeling guilty. Great. Great. Um, and I, I don't think, I just don't think people will put up with it. It's completely unsustainable. And I, I wonder has, you know, like have the, the businesses in Dublin, you know, have they looked around during the pandemic and been like, oh, shite, actually nobody lives in Dublin. Like, and now yeah. we're like, oh, please come in and shop here. You know, if you're not paying extortionate rent and being made come into work in an office, the entire center of Dublin is just empty. Yeah. Um. So I do think it will change. I think I think these things always get to a point, and then it like it just breaks, which is which is why I always think like, what are you know what are the landlords at? Like, where do they think this is going to end up? Like, what what's their plan? You know, they they're not even saying like trying to be nice, cozy, friendly capitalism, where they say, oh, of course you can have a house. They're like, no, we want more. Um, yeah. until people like. We literally have nothing to lose. Like you know, they won't. They just people just don't have places to live anymore. Um. So I definitely think it will change. Definitely. I really hope so. Yeah, I sincerely hope so. Just because otherwise, I was just talking to my sister today, and we're both talking about kind of emigrating for the next few years, possibly just because it's the only possibility for us to to move out to to live separately or you know to live alone yeah and where would you go just, somewhere nice oh well <laughs> my girlfriend lives in italy so that that would be the first port of call for me but uh and and it's it's just as much as you know moving to italy sounds nice it's just it would be great if i felt so welcomed here that i just didn't want to you know and i'm sure that's a lot of uh, i'm sure that's how many people feel that are in australia and canada you yeah. know if if they didn't feel like this was just the best option to leave, they wouldn't, you know? Yeah. I was just listening to a podcast yesterday uh -huh. um, called Policed, and it was interviewing a intersex sex worker. Uh -huh. I think her name was Adeline, Adeline Barry. But um, they were saying that, you know, Ireland it presents itself as the Ireland of 100,000 welcomes, but like they grew up in Tala. Um, and they said they never felt welcome. And, you know, they went, they emigrated to America. And 
they did come back, you know, however, 20, 20 something years after emigrating. And still they were like, I don't, you know, who, who is this welcome for? What do you, like, where is this welcome? And I think many, you know, a load of different sections of society kind of feel that they're like, who, who, what is this welcome? Where is it? This is it. There's definitely several conditions before you get this welcome. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, uh, just my final question I want to ask before we we, we go. Um, and it's it's what I particularly care about for you because when when you care so much about this, I'm sure you've, like me and like a few of my friends also really care about this, like they just have, you know, dark days and dark weeks because it's it's very hard to stay optimistic or it's hard to keep faith when it's just an onslaught of bad news and bad policy. Um, and I basically want to know how you keep a, a solid sense of well-being throughout this uh, difficult time. Um, well, I don't keep, yeah. I wouldn't call my sense of well-being very solid. Um, I do, oh yeah, I have awful days and weeks. And like when I'm lying in bed at night going to sleep, like I can feel these thoughts, like, Trying to be like, oh, hey, seriously, you haven't thought about this in a while. And I'm like, you know, and I'm trying to fall fall asleep before this takes over. And then I'm just lying awake thinking about this, feeling awful. Um, So I try and not talk about negative things before bed. Um, And I suppose I just kind of accept that these waves come over me and pass. I have had to mute a load of words on the Internet, words like ice fire (laughs) Um, because I'm you know I just I've stopped reading a lot of reports on climate breakdown I've started to be like okay look I know right now I know that (laughs) things have to to be done I don't need to know the specifics I'm going to guess what your report says is it's worse than we thought (laughs) yeah yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. but I'm not going to read it and, you know, I've wondered, is this kind of some sort of denialism? But I don't think it is because I, I know that things are really, really bad. I just. It's I, just finding out exactly how bad isn't probably the, the most productive no, way. Or, yeah. No, but other than that, I suppose I always go to the gym as much as I can. Um, and I do, you know, I do a good bit of gardening, a good bit of growing my own veg. Um, and I do try and read. So I've also so like, I don't read. I, I can. I will only let myself read fiction at night, going to bed. I won't let myself read anything that is nonfiction. Too real. Nonfiction is awful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually probably the worst person in the world to ask about uh, well-being for stuff like that because I find it so hard. Like I look at people, I, I there's one fella in particular I follow on Instagram. I've met him a few times. Like he's married to a local, uh, a girl from home. But like I think he teaches CrossFit, and they live in like San Diego or something, and they don't worry about climate change or climate breakdown or anything like that. They just have this like blissful life, or or it looks blissful. And I'm like, oh my god, imagine imagine being so unaware it, like i'm so envious of of people who don't don't have that cold knot in their stomach every day over this 
That's yeah. interesting you say that because, yeah, sometimes I think it as well. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it just be easier to just, ah, it's it's fine. But I think we'd just be lying to ourselves, you know. And I think while, uh, this is just me personally, I think while it's it's never going to be easy and it's definitely taken like the harder road, there's kind of like something more true about it like you're at least you're being true to yourself and not that this crossfit guy isn't being true like maybe he is be like he's just lucky enough to have not had a timeline or something that shows him all this bad news oh no i I think he's being totally genuine to himself yeah 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 um like and i'm sure there are millions of other people like that as well it's just when you know you can't unknow yeah (laughs) and it's like you know, we could we could probably go to somewhere and set up a bar and just go, yeah, life is great. But deep down, we'd say, yeah, no, but we still know what's going on. Yeah. You know? Could you ever truly forget? Well, I'd like it some sort of um, uh, like magic potion that I could actually just forget and live out my life. <laughs> Literally unaware of why everything awful is happening. Oh, no, don't say that. Don't say that. No, you have, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no. I mean, I think, I think it's 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 like what you said. Like, like know, but also know when know what you can do. Like, know the limitations and know it's like not your personal fault. You know, like it's yeah. I don't know. Yeah, do you just do your best? I suppose and mind yourself as best you can. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all we can do. Yeah. Listen, Sersha, I really appreciate you giving us your time. Thanks a million. Thanks for having me. It's very thanks enjoyable. So yes, thanks a million. Uh, be in touch. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.